The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. I'm the Associate Vice President for Faculty Advancement and Student Success at San Diego State University, and thank you for dialing in for part two of our conversation with the winners of SDSU's Spring 2020 Faculty Forward Awards. And these are awards we gave out um, a team of faculty and administrative leaders um, took nominations and handed out awards to folks who made an amazing pivot during Spring 2020. And our Center for Teaching and Learning Director, Sarah Elkind, who's a professor in history, has been having Zoom conversations and recording them. And the content is just so rich. We really wanted to share it with you, um, maybe to inspire and help you problem solve in your own teaching during this fall. So today we're going to hear on part two of this conversation from Philip Combiths, who is a uh, teaching associate in the School of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences, and Nick Johnson, an assistant professor in the School of Teacher Education. And what I love about this conversation is that it focuses a lot on the feelings. Um, How do you deal with uncertainty and anxiety in your classroom? How do you hold space for that without letting it um, derail your learning outcomes? And how do you deepen relationships with your students um, when you can't engage with them in in the ways that you, you know and love? So have a listen. So in my case, I was teaching a class of undergraduate seniors in their last semester uh, about to graduate at a time when they're already really uncertain. Um, So when this happened in March, it really highlighted how how anxious the students were. Um, They were anxious about what was going to happen with graduation, what they were going to do after they graduated, whether grad school would be something they can do. A lot of the students in in my, my department's uh, speech, language, and hearing sciences often work, um, for example, in elementary school settings, which is something that's really impacted by everything that's going on or they're going to graduate school. So they were already very anxious. Um, so my, my first goal really was to prioritize what was going on with the students and figure out how can we continue um, in the best learning environment that isn't going to be contributing to additionally to this anxiety and stress that they're already feeling with everything that's going on academically and in their personal lives. So that was the, that was the problem I was trying to solve. And what about, what about you, Nick? What was. Yeah. For, for me too, like echoing what Philip is saying, I think uh, first and foremost, beyond whatever content it was that we were trying to work through, it was about taking care of the people. Um, we we all knew each other. We've been in class together for a long time, and um, a lot of a lot of my students were going through different kinds of challenges and uncertainty. And so it was it was really about for me trying to find a way to communicate that that like I'm that I'm here and I want to know what's going on with you, and I want to make sure that this class 
whatever worries that you have, like the, this class isn't one of them. So how did you do that? I think there were some successes with it. <laughs> I think like part, part of that too is like, we can't, we can't expect a class to take on more than it's a class. Like we can't fix all the, all the things that are, are happening. But I think um, to acknowledge that those things were going on and to make sure to have space for people to talk to one another and to say what was on their mind um, every time that we met uh, was, was one thing that I intentionally designed into every class and also to give them a chance to do that in some settings that were maybe like less public. So sometimes it, it wasn't, I'm not going to call you out in the beginning of class and say, Hey, Sarah, like how, how are things going for you right now? Like, mm-hmm. but, um, but rather to give them a chance to talk to one another or people they had been in this cohort with all year long. Uh, and also to be really upfront and to say like part of part of what a lot of people are experiencing right now um, is that they don't want to talk about things that that they want to they want this class to just be this class and they're they want to not not have to deal with all the other things that are happening outside of class and so we have to give people an opening and a chance to to pass or to just say like don't, I don't really, I don't have much to say right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really on the same page as Nick here. It was um, how the challenge was trying to figure out the best way to get that communication going with students, um, but not in a way that causes pressure to those who, who don't want to be speaking about something at a given time. I, uh, when we were suddenly virtual, I was thinking, okay, there's a lot of a lot of challenges, more than I can conceptualize that each of these individuals are facing. There's no way for me to predict what's going to prevent student X from accessing the class as best as they could versus student Y. Um, so the f- first thing that I decided I needed to do was find a way to get that information from students. Um, and the... I, I just over-communicated, basically. Um, <laughs> redundant communication, a lot of communication. I tried to give them stability, um, even though I had no idea what was going on myself. Um, but the stable message I was trying to portray was that things would be flexible, that uh, we're just going to learn as best as we can. And then I asked students, um, I used Google Forms for this, um, to give me some information about how they felt in terms of being prepared for finishing the semester in this current format. So it was very generic and they all had to complete this. So they they had to give me information about whether they felt prepared, whether they didn't feel as prepared as they could be, or whether they felt completely unprepared and and stuff like that. So they had to give me that much information, but I, I left space for them to either anonymously or with their name attached if they wanted me to know about them in particular, what's going on and the challenges they they are facing and what they think they might face um, in the beginning. Um, Because it was a form, you know, it was private from the other students, but it was a conversation with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found that was very, very very helpful, I think pretty successful in that when I saw those responses, it was 
a huge moment for me in terms of realizing what the students were facing um, that's really legitimately making it impossible for them to really keep up with the class. And it helped me to generally come up with strategies that were flexible that would help more people, but I also gave me an opportunity to reach out to individuals and say, okay, let's make a plan for your situation um, and see what we can do. And so I guess the short story is uh, I couldn't predict what, I couldn't predict what a hundred different students are going to need to be successful in the class, but I could listen. And I think that was effective. Was, were the challenges more prevalent, like more severe, more prevalent than you expected? Or was it sort of consistent with the conversations around campus? Um, I would say I was surprised by the number of students who felt very unprepared. Um, and the kinds of, so I, I heard about lots of different kinds of scenarios from, say, a student who, you know, is living, is a, is a single parent with three children, one of the children, uh, with three children, right? And these children would have been going to school. They're also working and they're a student. Now they are taking care of the children and also they're now their teacher and they're still trying to graduate. Um, and they can't find more than five minutes to sit in front of a computer to do something. Um, there's also stories of um, individuals who, uh, like a typical student, you know, they, they, they might have the space they need and the time they need, but they are so riddled with um, anxiety about not being able to graduate or not being able to go to graduate school after this or just having no idea. And they don't deal with the uncertainty very well and they can't focus. Um, there was a whole range, but uh, most of the students were experiencing something that I would never have predicted and if I hadn't asked them directly. I think that's uh, um, sad, mm -hmm. but really helpful to know that in your class of 100 or more students, everybody was struggling. It sounds like nearly everybody was struggling on some level. Mm -hmm. um, and some students were struggling so much because they knew that they were in a situation that, that they were pretty privileged and in their particular situation, but they really felt for others. And um, I, I cried a lot reading, reading yeah. their responses. Yeah. Um, so what about you, Nick? Well, yeah, I want to go back to something that Philip said that really, really rang true for me and, and made me maybe think of something that I hadn't thought about before. Um, but the idea that when, when we ask students, you know, Hey, how's it going? Or we say, Hey, we really want to know what's going on with you and how I can help that. Um, it seemed like having multiple ways to do that made a difference. Like there, there are some students who, when I said at the end of class, like, Hey, I know there's a lot going on right now. So if you need to, if, if you need more time on this assignment or, you know, if there's just something that you want me to know about, um, you know, please, please feel free to let me know. And, you know, I had, I had people tell me in person, well, in, in zoom person, <laughs> or I had, I had people email me things and then you don't hear from a lot of folks too. And so um, Philip mentioned like a Google form, like there were some Google forms that we used where 
I asked students, um, there were some assignments we had to change because we were typically in classrooms working with children. And so some of those assignments, if, if you're not doing that, they didn't quite make sense. Uh, and so there were, there were a few things that we had to adapt. And so I tried to figure out a, a way to make it, um, oh, maybe not completely democratic, but more, more democratic than I normally would. And I said, like, hey, what do you all think about this? Like, we could adapt it in this sort of way. We could adapt it in this sort of way. And there was actually one assignment where I was like, you know what? Like, let's just, let's just get rid of this one. This one, mm-hmm. like, it's, you all have enough going on. Like, let's, you, you don't, this one doesn't sort of make sense given our current context. So let's, let's get rid of it. Um, and I know one, this, uh, a colleague suggested this to me and then I, I tried it. Um, one of my classes, it seemed like most, most folks were, um, at least home and healthy and relatively like able, able to attend class. Uh, and I had heard from a couple of them, but not, not too many. And I started off class with a a poll. I don't remember what the exact question was, but it was something to do with, you know, where, where is your anxiety on a scale of, I don't know, one to 10 or whatever it was. And everybody was way up there at like, you know, eight, nine, even though in class, like we were kind of, we have been going long enough that we were kind of doing our regular stuff. And there, there was a, you know, we had been in it for a, a while. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't brand new to us, and people were talking and participating in a lot of the same ways that we had earlier in the semester. Um, but I that was a really like good reminder to me that just because we've all found a way of coping in the moment, and that maybe I'm not presenting as somebody who's actually having a pretty hard time day to day figuring out how to how to get through things. Um, to give me that information. And then, right, you can, that poll information is anonymous and then you can show it to them. And I think it like, it's helpful for them sometimes to know that, you know, but as a, as a group, this is where we are. And mm-hmm. that, um, I'm, I'm not the only one who is feeling overwhelmed and, uh, and struggling with, with what to do. Yeah. I wonder if it's going to be better or worse in the fall. Um, because it, it, you know, on the, on the one hand, it's, there's sort of things that are routine. And on the other hand, there are these sort of accumulated stressors as things change and don't change. And I think, I think that I have no idea, but I think that, uh, our students are going to have higher expectations for us as they should, that we've, we, despite we all have our our challenges and our struggles right now, but we've had some time to try to work out the kinks in some of these things. And um, they're they're SDSU students. They have a right to expect a top notch educational experience. And uh, I, I want to be ready. Like I want to make sure that I'm I'm ready ready to li- to deliver. Like not that I'm going to have everything figured out, uh, but. Um, I, I think I have a higher expectation for myself, and I also think we have to. I have to recognize that um, my students are are likely going to 
continue to need to be listened to and to have adaptations and to be able to respond to what the current context is. So um, how do you, so you've talked some about the challenge and kind of inadvertently, I think one of my questions was how did you create a sense of community in these remote classes? But it sounds like we've sort of talked about that, like creating opportunities in multiple ways for students to talk about what they were going through. Were there other ways you created a sense of community? Um, so I have a thought about that. And it was pretty quickly, again, in March, after shifting to virtual instruction, pretty quickly, I pretty quickly realized, in combination with every, with the situation going on, um, trying to create engagement and participation and communication uh, in a way that looked a lot like how it was done in person wasn't as effective as I might have hoped it would be. So, um, you know, I really missed being in a, the same class with the students and us having discussions. And that was, that's kind of what I live for, you know, in a, in a really great class and you're just, the ideas are flowing and the students are into it, you're into it, it's so fantastic. Um, so you kind of try to create that on Zoom. And I won't say that doesn't happen because it actually does happen some, but what I realized was I'm trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. You know, most of these students are actually already really good at engaging and communicating online. You know, we have things like social media. There's a different format for this type of community and engagement, and we're already good at it. So let's use that. And I think that realization helped me a lot in terms of creating community by um, using things that are much more like how we typically communicate online with forums and discussions, collaborative documents, um, chatting, things like this. Um, even within Zoom in a class, I found students much more responsive to engaging through the chat box than through, you know, turning on their mic and talking. Um, of course, we can have all of those capacities in terms of involvement, but realizing that it doesn't need to look the same as it does in person, um, but can be just as effective, if not more so, was uh, very helpful for me. How did you, like, manage the oral communication and monitor the chat box at the same time, or did you read the chat afterwards? Um, the, the, so these are part of those challenges that, and kinks that we work out. For one, you always had to remember to turn on the view of the chat box at the beginning because <laughs> it doesn't show up on its own. And if you don't see it pop up right away, you miss it entirely. So just remembering to press, I think it was Control-H every time. I had to put a sticky note on my computer. Um, so I have a sticky yeah. note. That, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right, and start recording, same thing. Um, so there are definitely challenges there and a learning curve. But I would say with the chat in particular, um, I found you would notice that a chat occurred and kind of like a raised hand, um, I would note it and continue talk, talking until a stopping point. And then I would um, address the question in the comment box. It's a, I learned it's important, again, to make sure you read the question out loud for students who um, can't see it or who are going to watch a recording later. Um, but it actually gives you more time to respond to questions. So I could read it and decide, do I want to answer this right now or do I want to wait and answer it later? Do I need to rephrase the way it's questions before, before I 
repeat it back to the class. It actually is really helpful in giving you a little bit of that buffer mm -hmm. <laughs> space. Mm -hmm. What about you, Nick? Uh, what what Philip said. Um, I think one of the one of the things that that this really pushed me to think about in my own teaching was uh, that I rely so much on verbal participation and, and different kinds of verbal participation. So, you know, talking in the, in the group or in small groups or, or whatever, but that, um, that that just felt different and didn't work in a lot of cases or it, or it would work, but not for long, like not in the same sort of way. Uh, and so toward the end of the semester and really what I've been thinking about a lot in, in getting ready for the fall is how to, do a better job at using those different kinds of nonverbal forms. So like Philip mentioned that the chat, I, I don't know how many different setups I tried. Like I had, you know, multiple computer screens. This one was <laughs> logged in as a student so that I could see if I was screen sharing, right. And then the, the chat over here and then zoom kept like updating like every like two days and then things would be in a new place. And then I'd be like, well, is that in a new place or did I just never know about it? Uh, so there was a, a big learning curve with that, but um, thinking about yeah, shared sorts of documents where people can can work non-verbally and type things, um, the kinds of ways that they could engage in some of those same kinds of conversations, but asynchronously. So yeah, like discussion board posts, but also um, like one of my assignments, I tried to think about having them submit uh, just a video of them talking about it and it was interesting sometimes when, when I gave students choices like who would choose to do one format mm. over another like it maybe wouldn't always be like what I what I would have predicted from uh, from sort of how I knew them in a class environment um, but I, I do I think there's a lot of there's a lot of potential to actually support um, students who maybe feel less comfortable in the group speaking up or even in small groups speaking up to have a, a voice in a different way using um, some different kinds of collaborative tools and, and documents. So what are you going to do this fall? Are you going to do the same kinds of things? Are you going to change things up given that we're not you know, it's it's not sort of adapting a course that's in process. It's more starting from scratch. Yeah, <laughs> that's my that's my big worry, right? Like my my worry is I don't have relationships with my students like I did uh, when when this all came about in the spring, and so I've I've been thinking about I don't think I've figured figured out yet, but I've been really thinking about how to how to create some opportunities for that to happen um, when, when we're all at home and in class at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, like a, a logistical issue that I had that I have since um, gotten some advice from people on is, uh, so I like to use breakouts, but I, I've, I found that breakouts we're good for certain kinds of things and less good for other kinds of things. And one of, one of the things that was challenging is there are times when uh, there's, there are times when you want to randomize groups and that was really nice. 
for that, but there are also times when you want to assign people to groups and assigning mm-hmm. people is really clumsy. And there are times when I don't want to randomize and I don't want to choose. I want the students to choose. Right. And I couldn't figure out how to do that in Zoom until a colleague of mine was like, no, so all you do is you have them rename themselves and you say, oh, I want to be in group A. I want to be in group B. And so they just change their name to A underscore Sarah and B underscore Philip. And then it lines them up. And then, yes, there's still that awkward minute of silence while you put them into groups, but it it makes it a lot more quick Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to do that. And, um, and then they can build sort of a small group community, small group identity, and that would allow allow me to do that um, over over time or use the same groups over time in a way that uh, I wasn't able to figure out how to do in the spring. That is a clever trick. Um, I don't know specifically, but I thought I had heard that you can set up so correct me if I'm wrong, but you can set up groups ahead of time in Zoom. Is that true? You figured that out? I have not well, tried it. So, yeah, I'm speaking as someone who has not completely tried out everything I probably should have. But one of the issues with doing that is it seemed, I think students had to log in with a particular kind of ID, like mm-hmm. to have the menu of them. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I don't like we were piloting Canvas at the same time and just the like the which email is somebody using and are they getting the notifications and are they logging in with this this right account just became something I didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so I never I never went through everything to try to set that up. But it it's something it's something you had to you have to know what your groups are ahead of time, I believe. Mm-hmm. Sarah probably knows this better than I. No, um, but but what I do know is that, you know, I log in differently when I open Zoom in the browser and then join a meeting from there. That comes in with my name and my picture, but if I just click on a link, a Zoom link in an email, it's a black screen with my name, right? So I could mm-hmm. see that if you had set groups up based on assuming a particular login ID that that would get scrambled if they clicked on the email link. I'm also just to be honest, like I'm just a bad planner. Like I don't, I don't think it, I don't think things through to that level of detail ahead of time because a lot of times like what I think it's going to look like and then what actually we need to do 45 minutes into class is different because that's what teaching is. Teaching is about like responding to what you learn about, about your students and, and how they're making sense of whatever it is that you're doing together. And so uh, like the flexibility that we had in person to figure out how to arrange ourselves in different sorts of ways was something that, that I missed and that I was trying to figure out how to replicate and, and had some luck with, with it in some places and some challenges in others. I'm sure there's a correlation between, um, so what you, what you give up in planning, you, you have as a strength in, in flexibility and right and figuring things out on the go. And that's also probably why, um, you were so helpful to the students in this weird time when we had, when you had to <laughs> fly by the seat of your pants, so to speak. Um, 
about the fall, um, I mean, I have a million different thoughts about the fall, but uh, to be concise, I want to say I have a lot more tools now available after the Flex Course Institute. That was really helpful. Um, and in particular, thinking about sort of nonverbal engagement and communication, I'm excited to be using um, videos in Canvas Studio in particular mm -hmm. with the there's a couple features of that which I think are great for recorded videos of that I've made or videos that are from somewhere else that allow the students to sort of engage with content. Um, and I can have these sort of interactive moments that you could make for a grade if you want or not. But what I really like are the comments. So you can be flexible enough to allow students to watch the videos at different times, but they will see their peers' comments on the video at that time point as if it's live. So student A who watches the video on Monday, at some point, they're, they're leaving comments on the video, maybe because I asked them to, or that's just what we do. And then a student who watches on Friday, when they get to that time point, that student's comment pops up as if they're watching it with you. And I think that's a really cool feature for allowing you to be flexible um, and not have things be synchronous, but to still sort of feel like it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, so I'm excited to use that. Um, on, on Canvas, I'll be using groups to separate students into smaller groups for different activities uh, to create environments where they are interacting with each other more collaboratively in, in sort of manageable chunks. And hopefully the idea there is that they'll get comfortable enough with that that it's pretty self-guided and, and that you can tell them to collaborate, but then they have a lot of tools available to them to figure out whether they want to Zoom each other, whether they want to create a Google Doc that they work on together or, or what have you. Um, and um, this is something from I got from Jen Jennifer Imazeki in her, um, she did a webinar that I, I think it was this week about creating an inviting syllabus. Mm -hmm. And that I think is, is something that's, I'm really excited to do because of the syllabus being this sort of the very first thing that students see about your class. It really sets the stage and the tone for your class and this traditional syllabus that's kind of like a contract between the instructor and the student. It's sort of like already establishing this is a power dynamic. Um, these are the rules. Um, I'm saying these things so almost to protect myself because I'm establishing this and that's the way things are. Um, and I understand why they tend to feel that way, but re rethinking it as an invitation to to learn with you, to sort of get the student excited, it's like a like a love letter about the class, <laughs> where you where you tell them you know why you're so excited about this, what you want this journey to be, and give them the tools that they need to know to be successful. Thinking about it more like that, it's been fun to sort of revamp the syllabus. And I think putting energy into that is actually very worthwhile because it forces you to rethink about those types of things. Like, am I going to knuckle down on this requirement or am I going to create a more open type of class um, during a time when we have the flexibility to do so? So I, I right. think now is a great time to rethink those types of things. I'm really, I, I hope she recorded that, um, that webinar because 
I didn't, I didn't attend it, but I'm the official keeper of the syllabus template. Right now we have an official syllabus template, which is partly about formatting so stuff is readable on by screen readers. But it's also everybody keeps dumping all of this policy language, all of this like horrible boilerplate pages yes. and pages of policy language in. And so now the syllabus template's got, you know, the stuff about the class, but then also like where to report sexual harassment or violence and where to get economic assistance and and that's important information for students to have but it it sort of clogs i feel like our syllabi are going to have arterial sclerosis with all of this like bureaucratic you know some of it's useful some of it's uh resources students need to know about but maybe not right now like and so that's an interesting, different perspective mm -hmm. on, on the syllabus. So I, wanna... I hope you can talk to her. If nothing else, um, she shared an example syllabus that is just reading that syllabus is, is a really great place to start. Um, I was going to say something about, oh, and she was actually talking about the boilerplate things. And there's that's all very important information, but I just... The students are used to seeing that to the point that they don't see it. Like, and I, I can't blame them. I would do the exact same thing. When you read like a, uh, a contract or something that you're used to seeing, you automatically glaze over the part that you're like, oh, this is on every syllabus. I don't read this. But taking the time to rewrite, say, the inclusivity and, and approach to discrimination or your, you know, what to do if you have a disability, those kinds of things, if you think they're important, rewriting it in your own words um, makes it more likely they're actually going to read it. Mm -hmm. um, but but those, aren't, those aren't really my thoughts. Those are things she said. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, and... I have one more thought about the fall. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and this is actually, this isn't something that I'm fully sure that I'll be able to roll out in the fall. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about it ever since I read um, a paper in, in languages by um, Z. Gosh, I can't remember the, the author's name, but they're um, linguists at UCLA. And they wrote this paper about... Um, transforming your class into with a skills-based assessment protocol versus a point-based assessment system. And I just think it's phenomenal and so much more aligned with what we're trying to do now in terms of teaching. Um, and I, it's, it's just incredible. So if I don't roll it out entirely in the fall, I, I hope to do so in the spring. Uh, but the basic idea is just uh, the idea that we we were basically onto this with learner outcomes, you know, mm -hmm. when we have learner outcomes for our class, but you just take that and you kind of up the nozzle and really break down what are the skills and the knowledge that are that I expect people to learn from this class and really itemize that as like a checklist. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have like 90 items, different different sub skills that that uh, you acquire in the class. And 
you rethink, uh, you can still have all the same types of assessments and assignments that you would normally have, but instead of, you know, this assignment's worth 20 points, this one's worth 50 points. Um, it's just this assignment, this task covers, you know, 20 different um, skills. And what's key to making it flexible is that you retest skills at different times or you'll give students multiple opportunities. So a skill could, could appear in multiple different items and a student could either choose when they want to demonstrate the skill to you or, you know, if they've dis, um, displayed the skill already, they don't have to display it again. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea of this is in a traditional system, if you have... Um, so let's say you have you have a student who's normally doing very well in your class, and they have a really bad week. Well, that really bad week tends is when you have the midterm, and they do really poorly on the midterm, but they do really well on everything else. Depending how strict their their instructor is, you know, maybe they'll still pass, but they won't do nearly as well as really they should have done in terms of what they've learned, because at that particular time point they did not do well on the test. But in this system. So that student would maybe not demonstrate as many skills on that assessment, but they would have other opportunities later. So it's less about when they demonstrate the skill, but just that they demonstrate it at some point. Um, and I just think that that is a much better reflection of our assessment actually capturing that we want them to walk away from the class having gained certain skills, but without having to say, you need to gain these skills you know, in the first week and these ones in the second week. And right now when things are hybrid and some people are doing things synchronously and asynchronously, I think it's really the perfect time to be thinking about these are the skills they need to acquire and they can do them in different orders. Uh, anyway, I, I'm sharing that with everyone I, I talk to because I think it's fantastic. Um, Kizara, that, that was the name of the, the first author, if anyone's interested in that. That's really, that's very intriguing. And particularly for some classes or some yes. disciplines, it may be a particularly, partic it may be particularly well suited in certain classes or certain disciplines. Yeah. That's really neat. So we have a few more minutes. Is there anything else you guys want to, to talk about? Are there any of the questions that I posted that I haven't asked that you really had something to, to bring up? So the only other thing that, that was on my list was to say uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning from my students. Uh, I think this is, this is a time when um, we're, all on in, we're all in new places and trying to do new kinds of things or trying to do um, the same kinds of things in different ways. And uh, a lot of the work that, that I do in my classes is about trying to learn how to listen and make sense of your students' ideas um, in, in elementary school. And uh, I'm really terrified, but looking forward to being put in the position where I have to, I have to practice what I preach. Like I, <laughs> I have to be ready to learn, learn from my students about the innovative ways that they have figured out to share ideas with one another, to participate in this sort of environment, um, to work with young people, elementary aged children um, uh, in, in virtual kinds of environments. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. 
Ditto. (laughs) (laughs) The the only thing that I would add is when, you know, we're thinking right now about teaching and instruction, but one thing that I was really impressed with in the spring when we had this sudden transition was the flexibility. I was impressed with the flexibility of the students. Mm -hmm. Um, When after learning more about what, so even just some of the individuals were, were going through, seeing how empathetic the students were, um, how forgiving they were, uh, you know, instructors who also didn't know what's going on. <laughs> I, I really felt um, like, like a team, like we were working on this together, that we all wanted to learn and we wanted to do as best as we could and support each other. And I felt that more this spring than I ever have. So I, I, I do want to applaud our students for being so resilient. I think that's a lovely note to stop on, to end on. Thank you both for your time and congratulations on being award winners. And um, it was really, really interesting to, to listen to you and really fun to think about all of the different challenges that you have faced in your teaching. This is super cool. It was a pleasure to meet you both. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks, you too. Bye. Take care. All right. Take care.